All right, y'all, welcome to Men Thrive. I am uh, really pleased to have you all be a part of this show today. And, um, you know, there's so much going on in the world that we live in. And, and as black men in particular, we're constantly watching uh, content that is not, not only negative, but literally it is almost like a, a daily reality show of oppression and attacking our humanity. And in the midst of all of that, sometimes we don't even know how to find resolve um, because you all remember the conversation that we had with Reverend Jamal Bryant, where he talked about this reality that this generation of activists uh, doesn't even really have a win. I mean, Trayvon's killer is out there. Um, I mean, and, and, and you know what? What's crazy is if you could just do one name, if it wasn't like it, it's, it's Trayvon and then it's Tamir and then it's it's Brother Floyd and then it's I mean, it, it's name after name after name after name after name after city after city. And to a degree, even generation where we think about Sean Bell in New York and we think about um, uh, Brother Diallo uh, also in New York. I mean, it, it just has been for those of us that are black men in this country and those who love black men, a perpetual state of trauma and tears. And so when we're able to look in the midst of all of that and find a level of hope, find a level, some rays of light, find a story that doesn't end with the shooting. But in some cases, the shooting is a reimagining of a life and a spirit and an energy and that's really where we are today and i'm incredibly um the word isn't really excited i am uh thankful that i have the opportunity to introduce this brother to the men thrive community uh i met him years ago as he was beginning to in a real way um after he had gotten done fighting for his life um fighting for justice in the courts of pittsburgh uh, he was shot by the Pittsburgh Police Department, um, center mass several times, uh, went through unbelievable amounts of recovery, and in, in many cases, not only rehabilitation of his body, but rehabilitation of his mind and spirit. And one of the things that I remember most when first meeting him is not just the conversation with him, but the conversation with his parents. And when I was talking to his dad about him, he said the only thing that you could say about his son was that he smiled too much. And when I got the chance to meet him and see how he interacted with his son, and despite the fact that he had been left paralyzed um, and in a wheelchair, it did not seem to diminish his light and his spirit and his energy and his, his very humanity. And so I'm more humbled than I am anything else uh, to introduce the Men Thrive audience uh, to my brother and friend, Leon Ford. What's up, brother? What's up, bro? Thank you, man. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. And, and, and listen, let's, let's, let's dive right into it because there are a good number of people who know about your case uh, and what happened in Pittsburgh on, on that night. And there are some who don't. And so for those who don't, can you take us to that traffic stop um, when when you were pulled over and what ensued? Absolutely. So it, it happened November 11th, 2012. Um, I was pulled over for allegedly running a stop sign and um, I provided my driver's license. I provided my registration. I provided my car insurance. Uh, the officers ran my name in their MDT. Uh, everything came back clear. And then they decided to run L Ford in their system. Um, I'm sure hundreds of names, you know, showed up from Larry, Linda, um, Lionel, you know, uh, but they decided to choose Lamont Ford. And um, we know now from, you know, trial that they already had encounters with Lamont Ford so they knew exactly who Lamont Ford was and you can um, and you could even hear them in the car 
talking about who they were telling themselves who you were, despite the fact they knew that you weren't him. Exactly. And, um, yeah, so, you know, they made me out to be Lamont Ford, you know, even after I told them several times over and over again, you know, my name is Leon Ford, you know, this is my address. This is, you know, my previous address before that address. This is my birthday. Um, and they were not taking no for an answer. Uh, these officers used uh, several racial slurs. They they threatened me. And um, they, you know, after about 20 minutes of interrogating me on the side of the road, one of the officers unlocked my door. He reached in my car, unlocked my door, and tried to forcibly remove me from the car. You know, I panicked and I drove off. And uh, one of the officers on the passenger side jumped inside of my vehicle and immediately started firing. He, he uh, shot me five times and um, I crashed. They pulled me out of the car, slammed me on the ground face down, handcuffed me. One of the officers even kneeled next to my head, man. He was like, man, I hope you fucking die, you know, over and over again. And, um, you know, I woke up in the hospital and it's been a fight ever since. And, and, and I think that there's a couple of things, right? Because I know that, and, and I know you've had to deal with this since day one. I, I watch interactions with the police with our brothers and I listen to people as they make these judgment calls about, well, why didn't you just comply? Why didn't you just get out the car? Why didn't you just do what they told you to do? With, with no kind of connection to the fact that, listen, so many of our boys and men have constantly watched when there were no cameras, brothers comply. Um, George Floyd complied. We, we, we've seen brother after brother after brother after sister comply, and it doesn't necessarily translate into the same thing. And so when you and I first met, one of the things that I was so frustrated by was people saying, well, why didn't you just? And right. so I've never asked you that before. I didn't ask you that when, when, when I first did the interview because I thought it was offensive um, to, to say to you, why should you be responsible for you being shot when exactly. the police have a job to do? But, but I think that this moment has elevated this understanding of trauma of the police. And, and I, I want you, because I know of some suckers that's still going to be like, why didn't he just do what the police said to attack it head on, man. And, and you said you panicked, but, but that doesn't encapsulate it, right? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So let me stay by saying this. This was not my first time being pulled over. Um, at 19 years old, I had already been pulled over you know, probably over 80 times, right? And I started to drive when I was, you know, 16 years old or 15. I was six months before my 16th birthday. And I would just get stopped. They would, you know, search the car or, you, you said know. 80 times. Yeah, like, over. Are you, times. are you, is that like a fictitious number to just be like, it was a lot? Or are you literally saying that you got pulled over more than 80 times? in the course of two or three years? Literally, literally. And uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was normal, right? And I didn't know it was normal until after I got shot, right? I mean, I started to get, you know, detained by police. I remember the first time I got detained by a police officer, I was like 13 years old. We were having a water battle, you know, uh, near a park and there was this old woman who, you know, an elder who lived at the corner and she called the cops on us for, you know, getting her car wet. And they came and they, you know, uh, detained. They put us in handcuffs, set us on the ground. And again, you know, um, when we like it's, it's wild because when I told my grandma, she was like, well, what do you do? What did you do? Mm-hmm. Right. So there was this there, there was all, already this assumption that I that I and we did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just say that for context. That night, you know, when I when I was shot, I knew something was different, and I I I I, I didn't know what what happened if I would have got out of that car, right? Um, and and so, you know, I drove off, you know, and you know, I did a um, 
had a conversation, you know, with a friend of mine who's a police officer. And he was like, well, if you could have done anything differently, what would, what would you have done? Hmm. I told him I would have pulled off earlier, you know, because during that traffic stop, I complied. I did everything I was supposed to do. In fact, you know, I have the transcripts from my trial. The officers testified that during the entire traffic stop, I was kind, I was respectful, and there was not a point where they um, presumed me to be a threat until I drove off, right? So nobody's asking these police officers, well, what did y'all do to him for him to feel like he had to drive off? That he wasn't if safe. Y'all, if y'all never seen him as a threat. Yep. And I think that's, that's the point. That's the reason why I ask, because we've seen video. Um, hell, we've seen video of cops have a 20-minute conversation with a brother who is just saying, I just want to get home. Here's what I did. My kids, my family. And then when he starts to feel like, wait a minute, why are you doing this to me? and he operates out of fear, now he becomes a threat. You've had no guns drawn. You've had nothing. And so I think I, what I'm, it, it's horrible that, you know, nearly a decade later, we've gotten more examples of what you're talking about than we have greater examples of police that do a better job of de-escalating, of utilizing training to be able to ensure identity, to treating people humanely in communities who haven't posed a threat. Um, And if they have been in some way, shape or form, um, had problems with law enforcement before, that you use all of this money that's being spent on this training to ascertain if you're a threat in this moment. And so we we haven't seen it get better. We've seen it get worse. And so I, I just wanted you to be able to create frame because before we start talking about what what I'm more interested in, right, which is the man that you've become since that day. I thought it was important for people who didn't know your story to not just know the headline, um, but to understand how you experienced it, not how um, the Pittsburgh Chronicle portrayed it or not how prosecutors or attorneys portrayed it. Because when all is said and done, you the only one that got shot that night. You the right. only one that had your life irrevocably impacted. You're the only one who is now in a wheelchair and navigating an entirely new life. And so let's let's put a let's put a let's put a pin in that and and just deal with because because men thrive in a lot of ways is about how are we talking to brothers who decided that they wanted to do more than survive but they wanted to thrive. And there was a moment, brother, early in your rehabilitation where you had some choices. I mean, you, had a, you, you were an unbelievably charismatic brother. You had a ton of friends and popularity. You were a football player and an athlete. You had the use of your legs. You were getting ready to go to college. Like all of these things were happening. You had just had your son. Um, and so what for you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what was your state of mind in the worst times and what was the thing that said, wait a minute, come on, Leon, I ain't choosing this. Yeah. So I was completely broken completely broken. Um, I was insecure about myself. Um, I didn't have a voice. I remember vividly um, sitting in the office with my attorneys and my parents would do all the speaking, you know? And uh, my older brother, he would say, bro, this is your life. You have to do what you want to do. And I just, I didn't have it in me to say anything. And, um, you know, I was a father, you know, I didn't know, like, I didn't know how to be a father from a wheelchair, you know? Um, and so I had insecurities about that. I'm like, yo, what type of dad am I going to be? I can't run with my son. I can't do the things that my father did with me. Um, and, and, and so like, I, I was sad 
Uh, I was angry. I, w- I was full of hatred, you know. Um, you know, I talk about, you know, how I hated all white people, mm-hmm. right? And, and 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 that was real. Like, you know, I, I would be skeptical of, you know, certain nurses and, and just, you know, I was full of rage, man. I was full of rage. I didn't want to live, but I didn't have it in me uh, to hurt myself. Um, so, you know, instead of, you know, having thoughts about hurting myself, I had thoughts about, you know, hurting police officers and putting myself in a position where I knew I was going to die, you know, but I, I, I you know, I knew I was going to take somebody with me, you know, um, and my, my relationship, you know, so let, before I get into that, I have a very strong family structure. Yes, you do. You know, uh, my parents are amazing. My grandparents, uh, all of my cousins and aunts and uncles. I mean, they pour so much into me. Um, and I was, even though they were pouring into me, I, w- I was so upset and I was so angry. I wanted to be in this dark space. So I wasn't receptive to that love and support. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was until I opened my heart up. Right. So I said, yo, I want to be happy. You know, I want to live a normal life, and I, I don't know how, but I want it so badly. And, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with my grandfather, you know, and, and he goes, he was like, yo, Leon, you know, your, your life is already going to shit, man. You know, he was like, what are you going to do? You're in the lowest point of your life that you'll ever be. But, you know, one thing, you can't fall off the floor. So the only way to go up, to go from here is up. You know, so either you're going to go out or you're going to go up. How did you respond to that in the moment? I was like, man, (laughs) I don't want to hear this, right? But, like, everybody around me was, like, kind of babying me, like, man, Mm. oh, it's going to be all right. And I'm in my head, like, no, it's not. I'm in a wheelchair. It's not going to be all right, you know? And, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but I had, um, I have a baby sister who was killed. She was hit by a truck when I was 13 years old. Um, she was 10 years old when she passed away. And so I thought about her and I was like, yo, life didn't get better after my sister passed away. Um, and so when my grandfather said that to me, he was like, yo, you can't fall off the floor. I, I mean, that was like, I needed to hear that, you know, and then he wanted to talk about the foundation that I could build, right? Like, yo, you, yeah, your life is crap. You can build something. You can build whatever you want to build, you know? And I, I really listened to him and, and I started to build and I, I cre- literally, I thought about who I wanted to become mm-hmm. as a father, as a friend, as a son, as a cousin, you know, as, as a leader. And I, I created that image in my mind mm-hmm. and I became that person. Well, right? talk, talk to me a little bit about that because as you just said, listen, man, I remember I've done a lot of interviews, man. And, and I read the room every time I'm doing an interview and you know, it, the interview with me and you really happened because of attorney Crump, like Crump and I had the relationship. Y'all didn't really know me from Adam. And so I'm, I'm walking, I'm, I, when I meet you, I'm looking at your parents, looking at me like, all right, who is this dude? Like, <laughs> like, what's up? And so, and so it, 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 it might've been maybe 35, 40 minutes in before they was like, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. This dude, all right. And, yeah. and so it was, <laughs> and, and I loved that, right? Because I would have been the same way. Like there are so many people in media that are attempting to take advantage of people's moments versus trying to create space for them to tell the story they want to tell. And, right. and, and I, I bring that up because you had such this ever-present father and ever-present grandfather and incredible relationship with your brother. And so how did, how did these relationships with the men in your life dictate how you redefined who Leon was going to be from that foundational point. Yeah, man. Again, definitely strong relationships uh, with the men in my life. Um, and those who have encountered the men in my life, when they see me, they're like, 
oh, like they're not surprised of who I who I've become. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice, <laughs> right? Like when, when people be like, yo, like how did you overcome? I'm like, bro, my dad, my grandfather, my brother, they would not let me sit in that, right? They would do whatever they could in their power to lift me up. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and they all have different personalities. Right. My, my grandfather is like very wise and laid back. Right. Um, my brothers, he's, he's very, you know, spiritual and, you know, he's reserved as well. And my dad is just gutter, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so like they all, like I, I, I took pieces from all of them. You know what I mean? Like my dad told me like, look, you know what I'm saying? Straight up and down. If you die, I die. You know what I mean? If you go out here in in, in the fire, I go out here in the fire. What you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And my grandfather's like, yo. And it wasn't a this- game, though. Like, that wasn't hyperbole. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that was that was real. Yeah. Yeah, that was real. And, and, you know, and that was like to be broken and to know and understand the power that I was welding. Right. Like I, I, I knew how powerful I was. And so I knew I had to make decisions not only for myself, but for my family. You know, so what, what was the first step? Right. Because because I, I don't care who you are. I, recovery is not overnight, is not some metamorphosis. It literally starts with a first brick. And, and so <clears throat> from from granddad talking about you can't fall off the floor to you placing that first brick, what was the first brick? The first brick was me opening up my heart. But what did that like look I, like? Like, cause, cause you and I both yeah. know right now, yeah. you and I both know dudes who have not been shot, whose right. heart is hard as hell. And they, and they angry at everything. And they like, the world has just sold me some bullshit. And I, I don't just hate white people. I hate every fucking body. Right. We know those people, right? So, so how do you open your so, heart? Yeah, so, all right. The way that I could put it is like this. If you want to be successful, if you want to make some money, right, you're going to think about any type of way you want to make some money. And, it, and, it, and it's going to be in alignment with your values, mm. right? principles and your morals so some people are going to be willing to rob steal and kill for some money yeah. some people going to cut grass <laughs> some people going to move furniture right <laughs> like you're going to you're going to figure it out right and so i do that i wanted to be happy so the first step is making that i had to make that decision like yo do i want to be angry and 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 soaked in depression or do i want to be happy Right. Once I chose happiness, once I chose joy, once I chose to live my life, then I'm like, yo, well, how? Mm-hmm. Right. And that started from me listening to motivational videos on YouTube. Right. I began to read. Right. Because I'm like, yo, what what is happiness? What is joy? I began to, to, to look what, at what, people. What was, who, what was one of the first books you read in that time? The, one of the first books that I read was The Alchemist mm-hmm. by Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's a, like I've read that book over 20 times. Like I, I, read, I read it once a year. Yeah, man. And I, I kind of look at, um, you know, I, I look at uh, Santiago's life and, and I'm like, yo, like this is like, for instance, when he got robbed, mm-hmm. right? If he never got robbed, he would have never worked for the crystal merchant, mm-hmm. right? And like all these things started to make sense. He didn't see it in the beginning, right? But once he got to the end of you know his journey, he was like, yo, I needed to go through all this to become who I was supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? So, so in doing that, because I, I think that's perfect, right? Because he, whether we're talking about the alchemist or, or whether we're just talking about this fact that you literally had to decide who you were going to become, at what point did you go from saying, I just want to be happy 
to having a sense of what that happiness looked like. And, and, and what was that for you? When, when you said, this is who Leon is going to be five years from now. Um, what was it? Because it wasn't going to yeah. be a football player. It wasn't going right. to be, like, it wasn't going to be all the things that Leon said Leon was going to be before, right? right. I, I, I'm asking this in earnest, bro, because I think that there are so many people that, that start by telling themselves all the things they can't be as opposed to deciding what they will be. And, exactly. and at what point did you decide, all right, this, this is who I'm about to be? When I, when I chose happiness, God gave me purpose. Hmm. And I didn't know what that was. Like, if, if you look at my life now, you will see, you know, me organizing and me mm-hmm. getting a Be Me Award then mm-hmm. you know, uh, me becoming an entrepreneur in residence for a venture capital firm or like me running for, yo, none of that was planned. Mm-hmm. I didn't say I want to run for city council. I didn't say I, I, I you know, I wanted to be a community leader. You wasn't even I, on none of that when we met. Exactly. But you know what I did say when we met? I, t- I sat there, and you can go back and fa- look at the video. I sat there and looked at city council and said, I will never let y'all right. forget me. That's right. You did. Y'all, y'all are going to remember me no matter what. Yeah. Right? I, been, I, I said, I feel like I got a point to prove to the world. And I meant that. Mm-hmm. Right? And almost eight years later, they remember me. Well, cause you haven't, know- But you yeah. haven't stopped. And so, 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 you know, even, even when we talk about the ancestors, um, there's a, there's a, there's a a African proverb that says that the elders never truly die until you stop saying their name. And, and similarly, when you don't let people forget you, they can't forget you. Like you could have, you could have been like, I'm out to hell with Pittsburgh. I'm going somewhere else. You could have went to the crib and and fell into a bottle. You could have went. And, and done anything else. The reason why they haven't forgotten you is because you keep showing up. And, right. and so, no, listen, like, let's be clear about that because that's a daily choice. You and I know folks that were activists when this happened to you who ain't activists now. Or folks that was on the front lines when you were at City Hall, but the last three times something went down in Pittsburgh, you don't know where the hell they are. And so, like, this this... This thing ain't easy, bro. And so it, it takes out some of the best. So I, I just want to celebrate your consistency because not only have you kept coming back every day, but your evolution, man, has been like this, this organic, seamless kind of just space where you just keep saying, you just wake up each day and be like, all right, I'm going to do that. Right. But that's what we have to do as, as as men, right? As black men, every day we have to make a conscious decision and say, I'm going to show up. Mm-hmm. As as you evolve, as circumstances circumstances change, you're going to show up differently. Right? Like, bro, like when it went down in Pittsburgh, you know, with the, the latest protest, I wasn't on the front line, right? I was giving people advice yep. from the you know, from behind the scenes, but I was at home, you know, educating my son about what was going on and just being fully present with my son and my, my nephews and my little cousins. Right. And so I was showing up for them. Right. And so again, as, as long as you make that decision and say, yo, I want to build legacy. I don't want to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I want to be a a role model for my son or my daughter or my nieces and my nephews. Um, I, I want to be a role model for my community, right? I have to show up. And that's what we, we what we've seen with, you know, uh, the late Senator uh, John Lewis. Mm-hmm. He, made a, he made a conscious decision every single day to show up. And sometimes, like, you know, when you show up, you may be in a conversation with Jeff Johnson who may inspire you to do something or the next day it may be somebody else. But as long as you're showing up, right, and one of the four agreements says always do your best, right? As long as you always do your best, then you're going to excel. You're going to be connected to your purpose. 
So, so let me ask you this, right? Because I know that as black men in particular, we have been conditioned to believe that manhood is about strength. Um, and, and often that strength for us is totally physical. So whether, whether our prowess with women or our ability to knock somebody out or all, all of these kind of physical manifestations of masculinity, what for you was the moment where you realized that your strength wasn't connected to your legs? <laughs> when I woke up in the hospital. <laughs> Literally. Bruh, I woke up. Bro, I used to box. Yep. You feel me? I was I was young. I worked at an auto body shop. I was painting cars. I had a 1987 Monte Carlo SS, you know, that was rimmed up. I had sounds in it. I had a 1971 Cutlass. And I had my Infinity that I was driving when I got shot. So I, I thought I was the man, bro. <laughs> right? And then here I go. I wake up in the hospital completely insecure. Doesn't matter how much, how many cars I had, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how much money I have. It doesn't matter how many women I'm dating. I'm insecure about myself, right? As a man, right? I'm like, I remember the first time I went to get a, a haircut and I'm at, at the barbershop and I'm like looking up at people, mm-hmm. shaking their hand. And it, it was like humiliating because I'm like, yo, I remember I could, you know, stand up and look a man in his eyes. Now they're looking down on me and that, that crushed me, that, that shattered me. Right. And so I had to, in order for me to be confident about myself, I had to literally redefine what manhood would look like for me. Right. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And, and what has that been like for you by way of, I got, I have a, I have another dear friend, man, who was the victim of, some idiots just trying, just shooting up a school, right? And, um, I mean, I, I think I think you know Tipper Thomas, don't you? Tipper Tipper, Tipper Thomas out of Baltimore. I yeah. Think he, yeah, Tip did, has done a bunch of Be Me stuff. And, you know, I, I'll talk to him sometimes, and, and he'll talk to me about dating and ladies. And, and I'm like, yo, bro, like, what was that like, man, for, for you to... Cause, cause, listen, bro. You, you already said you was bigger than life. Like, you was, you was coming through, putting in work, and and so, if it's if it's hard enough, kind of redefining manhood, in a space where you already had a tribe, right? You had a community, and and it wasn't like bros was gonna try you. They was encouraging you, um, and they they wasn't treating you like you was soft. They already knew how strong you were. But it's a whole nother thing, man. We already, if 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 most brothers keep it a hundred, when we at our best, we still insecure when it comes to women sometimes. And right. so, like, what was that process for you? Um, because to me, that's like the pinnacle of totally accepting who I am when mm-hmm. I can roll in this space where I've been conditioned to believe that I gotta be something else and I can be all me. And so, and so I'm, I'm curious, man, what, what was the, what was the roll back to believing you could have love, that, that it wouldn't be about somebody feeling sorry for you, that you was all man and you needed to be with somebody or have a relationship where they could embrace that. I'm, I'm incredibly curious, brother, because I know how dysfunctional we can be with our relationships when we think that we are what we really ain't. Um, but, but what was that like for you? It was, so for me, it was, I was already vulnerable. Hmm. Right. And, you know, in that vulnerability, I would still attract women, right? Like I'm completely broken and there's women who are like, you know, trying to love me. And at first I'm like, yo, man, I don't know what y'all angle is. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yo, back up, you know? But what I realized is that, yo, they were being so authentic mm. and they were being vulnerable because they seen my vulnerability and it helped me understand love from a completely different mm. way. 
right? Mm-hmm. And even when I think when I think about my dad, like my dad, he has always been vulnerable to me, right? But he never showed that to the world. Mm-hmm. And as I as I would grow into my manhood, I'm like, yo, you know, all my life I wanted to be like my dad's mask, right? Mm. While he was showing me who he truly was, mm. right? And I overlooked that, right? And so um, I, I, I really found strength in, you know, taking the mask off. And, and that really, you know, it helped me out a lot. It helped me become more confident in myself. And I don't have, I don't have issues dating or anything like that. You know, it's like people are connected to uh, sincerity. You know, people want to, want you to be authentic and real and, you know, and transparent. And that's what love is. Yes, it is. Right. Like, you know, before, like growing up, I thought love was, you know, to provide, to protect and even to possess. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yo, I, you are mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And there's nothing now, that could be further from love than that. Exactly. You know, now I'm like, yo, you got to be transparent. You know, you got to be vulnerable. You know, you got to, you know, be willing to, you know, nurture someone spiritually. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and to be free, like love is free. Right. It's not, it, you shouldn't feel like, you know, like you're incarcerated. Right. You should, you should feel free when, when you truly love somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I learned that, you know, throughout my process. Well, and talk about love, man. I, I, I still have, I don't know if I've seen many fathers as excited as you were to be a dad. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, your role back in a lot of way was so much fueled by him, man, because you couldn't, you couldn't be in his presence, man, without lighting up. And, Bro, let, and my, not to cut you off. No, no, my go bad, ahead. My, my father, right, he served as a great example. My father was willing to die for me, right? And so I had to make a, a decision to live for my son. Because if I die, my dad die, who's going to be there for him, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I said, hey, I got to live for this dude. Mm-hmm. I love him so much. Like, a lot of times when we talk about, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I love you to death, Right. Like, no, like I, I'm willing to live the best life that I can live for you. Yep. Right. And that's, that's like the shift that I had for fatherhood for me. Like, and, and, you know, now my dad, my dad, he's like, I'm living for my son, Mm -hmm. you know? And now we, we, and now we're all happy and and we're living together and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're growing from each other, man. And it's, it's healthy. So, so talk to me about your, your favorite part of being a dad right now. I mean, like seven years old, man, is a, is a big age. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a redefining of how he sees himself in the world, how he's showing up. Um, yeah. what, what, what are you having the most fun with being dad right now? Uh, my son's identity, bro. Dude's like, he wants to be just like me. But he loves himself enough to understand, like, yeah, there's parts of my dad that I don't agree with, right? So, like, I've been I've been doing a vegan thing, right? And I'm like, son, like, you should try. He's like, I don't got to be like you, <laughs> you know? What I'm saying? I like chicken, you know? What I'm saying, and I'm like, all right, but you know, what I mean, we gonna we gonna figure it out, you know? But he's just like, he knows himself, man, and he he loves himself. He's very confident. He's like, you know, he helps me out now. Uh, like, you know, I, I have a truck, right? And so, you know, usually, you know, I'll take my chair apart, you know, and, and you know, put sit in the, my chair on the front seat. But now, like, he's like, no, Dad, here, I got it. You know what I mean? Wow. And he'll put the chair in the trunk for me, you know? And I'm like, yo, like, this is wild. Like, my little, you know, seven-year-old son is really, like, helping me out, you Man. know? When you think about... um the dad that you are now, what are you most proud of about you? I'm most proud of time. Break that down. So, you know, I, I, I value time, man. And I have so much time for my son. Um, I don't separate, you know, work, right. And, and leadership from fatherhood. Yeah. 
if I show up, my son's showing up with me, mm-hmm. right? Like he is my number one priority and like everything else is, you know, built around, around him. Right. And, you know, I, but I also recognize that, that it's a, it's a, a privilege and, and a luxury that I have, you know, you know, because of my circumstances, um, like financially, mm-hmm. but, um, but that, and that's what I value. Right. And so like, I'm, I, I spend time, like, you know, so much time with my son and my nephew and my little cousin. I have, I have three little cousins, man, who just lost their dad a month ago mm-hmm. and they're at my house like every day. Right. And, and, you know, just, you know, valuing that time, letting them know that, yo, I love y'all. Right. Um, I'm not just telling y'all what to do. I'm leading by example. And also y'all are a part of what I'm doing. So I'm asking them, what what do y'all think about this? You know, and and we we read together, you know, we we challenge each other and and to see them together, you know, creating their own little tribe is amazing. Mm. When when you think about legacy, Leon, you, you know, you talked a little bit ago, um, about all these things that you had done that you never thought you would do, that you you became, you you went from fighting for your justice to fighting for justice, um, and you you decided that you wanted to run for for city council, and then realized that wasn't the best option for you. Um, what is the option for you now? And 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 you think about because you you've been this really interesting like chess player man where where you've been the pawn that keeps getting to the end and turning into another piece. Um, and, and, and like, so what's the, what's the next piece for you? So right now I am, you know, working on a book, uh, my mm. second book, really. And uh, I'm also working on some TV stuff, man. Okay. So yeah, right. and, and we're, you know, we're, we're still doing some, you know, negotiating, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm excited and, um, just, you know, to be in that, that creative space. Um, I'm also, you know, still interested in entrepreneurship and, you know, investing in, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, socially responsible companies and, you know, just trying to leverage my voice, um, my platform and my my dollars to change the world. Mm -hmm. And as you think about like where Pittsburgh is right now, um, you know, Pittsburgh in a lot of ways is, is touted as an example of how to create economic change. And, you know, from from a, a steel town driven by the auto industry to a town that was struggling all over the place to now like the 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 Austin, Texas of the Midwest, where where, you know, young startup cats are trying to get to to be engaged in this ecosystem, <clears throat> but that hasn't translated for black folks. And, and the communities that I know in Pittsburgh still look the same as they did before the tech folks came to, to Pittsburgh. And so how, how are you navigating this role as activist, especially in the midst of COVID and a rebellion about how you want to play in Pittsburgh specifically? Cause I know that you are so committed to, legacy and if that legacy doesn't happen in pittsburgh you don't really care if it happens anywhere else right so again man just leading by example right i I, you know so when i was running for city council i would talk about gentrification right Mm -hmm. and like what i would do um to fight it you know and then now i didn't run for city council it's like yo i'm buying property yep right and 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 you know it's it's dope because like I remember having friends that would come home from prison and I'm like, you know, let me see who I know so I can get you a job. It's different when, you know, I'm, I'm rehabbing a, 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 a duplex or a triplex and I'm yeah. like, yo, like just be there on Monday, bro. If you don't show up, that's on you, bro. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like just, just, just get there. You know where it's at. You know what I mean? And, and, and you're going to get paid. You're going to get paid that day. I'll pay you that day. You know what I mean? So it's, it's different. And, and also on, on a larger scale, you know, I'm, I'm close to, you know, a few, um, you know, uh, African-American developers, right. Mm-hmm. Who, 
they don't have the same access as, you know, their white counterparts who got these huge, you know, um, investment firms behind them. Um, and so, uh, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, I've taken risk, right. And, and I have invested dollars in their projects and, that's what we have to do, right? We, we have to support each other. And so, again, I'm not just talking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing it. And, and, and um, it's just, it's exciting. It's exciting work. And I know that, you know, we have the capacity to transform our communities without having to, you know, uh, like, you know, go outside of our communities uh, for assistance. You know, I mean, there's there's so many, you know, wealthy black folks, you know, around this country, you know what I mean? And as long as we could continue to build, you know, uh, stronger communities and, and networks where we can pull our dollars and resources together uh, for these types of projects, man, we can really have a, a strong impact. And again, for legacy, it's like, man, you know, for me, bro, I live in the hood, bro, in Pittsburgh, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, I didn't buy no big old crib, you know, in, in the suburbs, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, I, I live in the hood and, you know, I, I have the kids, I, I talk to them, you know what I mean? And want, like, they see me like, yo, you was talking to Obama yesterday, bro, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And and, and they, they love that, right? And, and to make myself, um, accessible to, to them to show them what they can do. Right. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 27 years old and, you know, the, with the platform that I have, you know, there, there's not a hustler in, in my city that can, you know, uh, compete. Right. And so when, when, when these young kids are looking up to, do I want to be like this hustler? Right. Or do I want to be like, like Leon, who like, who's like, yo, doing all this, you know, work and he's talking to Obama and, you know, he lives right here and he, he can hang out in any neighborhood in Pittsburgh that he wants to. And he's safe. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I'm showing them like, yo, you could write, you could tell your story, you know, you, you could do whatever you want to do. Like just create that image in your mind and manifest whatever it is that you want to manifest. And they believe it because they're seeing me do it in real time. Man, Leon, let me tell you what, man. When I got home from Pittsburgh after interviewing you for the first time, um, you know, my, my wife is my best friend. And so I'm like, baby, I don't understand this shit. And she's like, what? And and I'm like, I don't understand this dude. She's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, there was nothing about him that, was negative like yeah he was fighting this case and he knew that they was trying to do the okie doke on him and he wasn't really sure how it was gonna go down but like even that was like second to life and and family and fatherhood and and just possibility and so man i i hope i hope it's all right for me to say how proud i am of you man like like Thank you, man. For, for, for the man that you've been, because um, you didn't have to. I know, I know the stock that you come from. I know the DNA that you come from. I know that. But, but we still choose every day. And, and, and you, you, you've been choosing, brother, um, to elevate every single day. And I'm so excited about who Leon is going to be five years from now. Um, cause what you've allowed yourself to be open to, um, over, over these last seven years, man, has, has been incredible. And, and I know that I speak for a lot of folks who, who watch you move, but don't talk to you with a level of frequency to, and, and that was why I wanted you to be on the show, man, because it, it was, I didn't want you to be on the show because it was about, oh, let's talk about police brutality and a dude who got shot. You on this show, man, because of what you've done since that day and 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 your commitment to thrive, brother, just just dwarfs that of of folks who are looking at resume, but who ain't looking at spirit. And so my, my last question for you, brother, is if if you could um, really write as you already are doing, uh, your legacy, what 
is the one thing you want people to say about you when all this this whole thing is said and done? That I never gave up. I never gave up hope. I never gave up love. And I never gave up on myself. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's, that's it, man. It's like... You know, me not, not giving up that hope, love or on myself. I still believe in people. Yeah. I still believe in myself. I still believe that love exists, even in the midst of, you know, what's happening in the world. Right. There still are good people. There, there, are, there are several good people, you know, um, that are having you know, powerful conversations about, you know, climate change, about race and racism, about, you know, human trafficking. Like there are people trying to solve real problems, you know, and these are good people who are making a commitment to thrive. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, we have to continue to make that commitment every single day. I just uh, finished reading a book called the power of the subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. Right. As I look back on my journey, right, and, and I thank you for everything you said, man, um, but as I look back on my journey, I think, you know, one of the things that, the underlying thing that helped me was that, you know, that overwhelming sense of uh, possibilities, right, of, of love, of positivity, that optimism that really helped me manifest things in my life, mm -hmm. right, and so... I would encourage, you know, anybody who who may be, you know, maybe a little pessimistic, maybe, you know, uh, even realistic about their circumstances. Right. Say, say that um, again, please. Say that again and 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 just reiterate why you said that. Yeah. I, I, so to people who are being realistic about their circumstances and I say realistic. Because a lot of times we use pessimistic or optimistic as if you are either hopeful or hopeless, but sometimes you're just being real. Sometimes stuff in your life is just not going well, and it's okay to acknowledge that, right? So while you're being realistic, right, just try your best, right, to transform those thoughts, of you know negativity into positivity um so that you can you know even and, and let me back up let me take a step back one way that you can transform those thoughts is by not focusing on you know the bad things right not focusing on what you are going through right but focusing on what you are grateful for and where you want to go gratitude is powerful brother Gratitude is one of the most powerful things that we have. And I'm, I'm just so glad you said that because often I think realism is often more dangerous than pessimism. Um, because sometimes being realistic says that this normality is it. And the people who I know, man, who are thriving are the ones who have imagined doing shit that don't make no sense. Like it wasn't realistic at all for 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 when I think about my own business or I think about my second marriage or I think about my children or I think about how we live. I think about you. I think about some of my friends like five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Where they are now wasn't the realistic reality no. where they are now was the impossible reality. And so I'm so glad you said that, brother, because realism is killing a lot of us because we're keeping it so real um, that we're that we are allowing our condition that was never meant to be to define our identity versus recognizing, yo, 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 this condition is actually the attack of those who want me to believe that my vision of the impossible can't happen. And so, bro, you, you hit that one, man. Um, we got a dream. We got to keep dreaming, man. And understand that, yo, we can literally do whatever, whatever we want. Bro, I'm like, I'm still like, I grew up in a hood. My dad did 14 years in a federal prison. 
and I got shot. I was facing, you know, time in prison. And it's like, bro, like for people who knew me and who know me, who watched me grow up to see me on that screen with, you know, President Obama and mm-hmm. Senator John Lewis and Darnell Moore and Laquan McDonald and Brian Stevenson, they like, yo, how? <laughs> how? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> I had a vision, man. Like I, I, I manifested these things. Hmm. So let me ask you this, bro. Like, cause, cause we draw so much inspiration from the people that we're around. Um, and you're, you're such a student. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. We, we ask a lot of our brothers on men thrive. If you could curate a dinner with three men living or dead, who would be your three? John Edgar Wideman. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of my mentors. I, I talk to him pretty often. I, I didn't uh, even know y'all knew it. Like I, I was introduced to him by, um, God, who was I introduced to him by? I think Sean Dove. Mm. Yeah, I think Sean Dove. All right, so John Edgar Wideman. So why him? Because most people have no idea who you're talking about. John Edgar Wideman is an author from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. He's from Homewood, and he just... Uh, he challenges me. Our relationship is like, um, have you ever, uh, uh, what, what's the, what's the book called? The, the guy's name was Jamal finding Forrester. I knew you was getting ready to say that. <laughs> I just watched a movie the other night. Finding Forrester. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was right. And we, I share my pieces with him. He shares pieces mm-hmm. with me and like we challenge each other. He challenges me. He's like, I'll I'll send him something that I think is fire, and he'll be like, "Slow down, like you know what I'm saying, like what was on the table, you know what I mean? What did you see on the wall? What did you smell? Mm. What did you hear? You like?" And and he he challenges me to really uh, to be a more detailed writer, mm. and uh, I just love his his perspective on life. Uh, and yeah, I, that's, that's, that's my guy. No, you threw me with that one. I had no idea that relationship, obviously. So no, that's, that's beautiful. So, so two and three. Um, this is, um, I really, um, I really appreciate James Baldwin's work. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I really do. Um, so I would say James Baldwin, and then Malcolm X. Mm. Mm-hmm. That listen, Baldwin alone is a conversation for the ages. Whether you're talking about football or you're talking about <laughs> geopolitical issues. Uh, that that brother's mind was just so unbelievable, and um, his contributions. I think in a lot of ways, either there's a whole nother generation who are just really starting to appreciate Baldwin, or as a culture, we're just starting to appreciate Baldwin. Um, one of the two. I'm not really sure which one it is yet. Uh. But I'm that. But that that is uh that would be a dinner for the ages, brother. Man, listen, Leon. I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate your time, um, your example, and, and your willingness to 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 holler at me, brother. I'm excited about what's to come for you. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate you, and you've always been the big bro, the mentor, man. <laughs> and so I thank you again. Uh, like I, I told Mo, like, yo, you, you're the first one to really break my story, man. And you coming, you know, taking the time to come to Pittsburgh, you know, to really, you know, um, share my story to, to talk to my family. It, it, you know, bro, I would never forget that. It means so much to me. And, you know, um, just to be having this conversation with you right now, it, it, it's like, I'm, I'm so grateful for it and, and appreciative uh, because, it, you know, you met me at two completely different yeah, stages uh, of my life, man. Yeah. And 
uh, again, like to go back to that, that video when I made that declaration to the city council of Pittsburgh, man, I meant it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and again, and I, I would leave this, you know, uh, with the audience is like, yo, you know, say what you mean, declare, you know, who you are, declare who you are going to be, um, and, and say it with conviction, Right. And when you say it with conviction, listen to your spirit and allow your spirit to take you on that that journey. Right. Uh, like like Santiago and the alchemist, <laughs> you know, there's going to be some ups. There's going to be some some downs. Um, there's going to be twists and turns, but there's always the answer. Right. There's always purpose behind it. Um, so embrace the ride and, and, and you know, fulfill your purpose. Yo, home, Leon, that that is an absolute bar. And we're going to leave it right there because I don't even want to follow anything up with that. <laughs> Man, listen, thank you so much for coming through. You all, please, you can follow my brother Leon Ford at Leon Ford Speaks on all social media. Uh, support him, support his movement, support his books, support his work. But more importantly, just uh, support this brother as he is supporting us. As we get out of here, I want to talk a little bit about just just this. I think the energy that Leon brought to the show is something that I, I just have to reiterate. I mean, th- there are 50,000 reasons why this brother could be walking around angry, pissed off, mad at the world, ready to take out white people, ready to take out the police, ready to take out anybody. But he doesn't. And I think that there is something about optimism in the midst of racism that we we recognize who we are even as we don't try to change the reality of the world and the forever prolific and and profound James Baldwin uh talked about this very fact and I, I'm not even going to set it up any more than that I just want you to listen to uh James Baldwin right here I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive to be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there's no difference in the north and the south. There's just no difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And there it is, because so often many of us as black men are trying to figure out who we are within the context of the creation of the American Negro, the American nigger, the American black man versus who we are within the context of our very creation, which had nothing to do with this country, despite the fact that we find ourselves here. And so there are times when we got to just let other people figure stuff out. Because we don't embrace or wear uh, or internalize at some point who they want us to be. And so I am so thankful again for um, my brother, Leon Ford, coming through. And as you think about this, and even as you listen to Baldwin, um, who are you? Because the, the, the clip that this is from is from I am not your Negro. And he said, I'm not your nigga either. But who are you? And, and, and I'm wondering if you could, in one sentence, say who you are. Uh, use the hashtag Men Thrive and, and just give me the sentence of who you are. Uh, 
how you define yourself, how you show up in the world, disconnected from what any parents or schools or white supremacy or hating friends or anybody says that you are. Who are you? Let me know at hashtag men thrive because uh, I'd love to know it. And, and I'll share with you after you share with me uh, as I think about that myself. Uh, big up to Mo, our producer who makes this happen to Madison and the whole men thrive team. We absolutely Appreciate every single one of you for tuning in and listening to our show. Uh, We hope that you continue to stay with us. Let us know what you think. If you like it, if you don't like it, Um, you can hit us at men thrive, uh, men underscore thrive on IG. Uh, You can go to our website, uh, menthrive.com. And either place you can let us know. We'd love for you to be part of our community. Uh, You can check out uh, any of our meditations, our affirmations, our blog, uh, and obviously other episodes of the Men Thrive podcast. Uh, Until next week, you all, please uh, love yourself, love each other. Um, But listen, in in the midst of all that's going on, uh, even beyond loving yourselves and each other, uh, decide who you're going to be in this space uh, and be that in a way that is so unrelentingly gangster uh, that people don't have any choice but to see you. Y'all have a great week, and I'll check in with you, uh, God willing, next week. Peace. Yo, thanks for listening to Men Thrive. Did you like us? If you like us, visit your go-to podcast provider and check out other episodes. And also go deeper by joining our community at menthrive.com. 